Hi, and welcome to the February 17th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and my desire is to help you grow in your understanding and enjoyment of God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Today we get back to Leviticus, and we also finish the Gospel of Matthew with the resurrection account. So let's let me give you the readings, and uh, and, and here they are: Leviticus chapter 21 and 22, and Matthew chapter 28. Once again, that's Leviticus 21 and 22, and Matthew chapter 28. Now, if you've not read that, I would encourage you, go back and read God's Word for yourself, looking for the things that He would reveal to you, and then come back and uh, listen to this podcast as I share the things that I saw. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, so let's look at Leviticus 21. Now, this chapter divides itself into two sections. Verses 1 through 15 focuses on the holiness of the priests. And then verses 16 through 24 continues on, but it focuses on the the fact that they are set apart in that there are no defects, physical defects with the priests. So let's look at the first part first. Verses 1 through 15. It speaks of the holiness of the priests. And uh, first of all, one of the things that we discover in this is the general jest, the general feel of this these verses, is that those who are called to spiritual authority, specifically spiritual um, servant leadership, uh, are called to a higher standard. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers. And I believe that that is even specifically, generally talking about Bible teachers, but even specifically talking about the pastor teacher. It says, let not many of you become teachers because we will receive the stricter judgment. And so there's a higher standard. There's a stricter judgment for those that are in spiritual authority, spiritual leadership. And so we're not surprised that in the Old Testament, there were standards uh, that... Uh, had to be met by those that were the priests. The other thing that I want us to realize, though, is that we need to read the book of Leviticus as what it was intended to be. The book of Leviticus is a chap is a book that was written to tell the Israelite priests how they were to behave and what was to characterize them. Now, we may be tempted to look through the list of Leviticus 21. We may be tempted to look through and say, hey, you know, th- these apply to New Testament people. No, they don't. No, they don't. This is the Le- Levitical law. It was done away with. It only applied to the Israelites. Because if we're going to say that this applies to New Testament leaders, then what do you do with the prohibition that we read about in Leviticus 21 where the priest could not go around a dead person except for someone of their immediate family? Well, when we look at Jesus, we observe that he touched a dead man's casket in Luke 7:14, and Peter was in the room with a dead girl when she was brought back to life in Acts chapter 9. And what do you do with the responsibilities of pastors today whenever they are constantly being with families in the presence of someone who steps through death's door? And so we can't pick and choose. You know, we can't pick and choose from this. And so I just want to encourage you that as you read through Leviticus 21, these are the stipulations for the Israelite priests. 
Now, there may be a temptation to say, oh yeah, but some of those apply. Yes, but as New Testament believers, we look to the New Testament for clarification. And where we find the qualifications for pastor and for deacons who are servant leaders, we look to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. So I just want to encourage you that as you read through the Old Testament, we gather themes and there are overarching principles that we can pull over to the New Testament, but we have to be so careful about picking and choosing because then the question becomes, on what basis are we picking some out and not picking others out? We just have to be so careful. Read the Old Testament as the word to the Old Testament believers that does have ramifications for us in the New Testament, but the clarification for us is given in the New Testament. Okay, verses 16 through 24, we uh, read what seems to be uh, kind of harsh. You know, what if you were born with an, a defect where you only had uh, four fingers on your right hand and not five? What happens if you were born with an eye that, that didn't work right or, you know, an ear that was larger than the other one or something like that? Uh, well, according to uh, Leviticus 21 verses 16 through 24, you would not have been able to serve as a priest. One of the things that I see is that this... Um, these stipulations were essentially saying that the priest is going to have a job that he needs to do. He needs to be physically able to do it. But also, there were certain deformities and things that would not prohibit the priest from doing his job. And yet, because he had that physical deformity, he would not be able to do that. All this was, was God simply saying that there are certain people who can serve me and certain people who cannot. The priestly line was made up of men. Men could serve as priests, women could not. So it was discriminatory. Those with physical uh, bodies that were that that were normal, and, you know, as far as everything's there, all the digits are there, everything looks good, everything's everything's fine. They could serve. The ones with defects were not. So once again, it was discriminatory. When we, as especially as 21st century Americans, hear hear the word discrimination, we think immediately bad. But I'm telling you that, uh, you know, if you, you have a Miss America pageant, those with physical defects are not going to win the pageant. They're not going to win it. Uh, if you have a Mr. America, you know, those with physical defects are generally, they're not going to win that context. And so while we say we do not believe in discrimination, we're, we're, we're two-faced. We're talking out of both sides of our mouth. And so what the Lord was doing in the Old Testament is saying, yes, I will determine who serves and who doesn't. These can and these cannot. And God has the right to do that. After all, who's the one that gave us our bodies? Whether it is a body that is normal compared to other people or it's one that has defects, we realize that God gave us that body. But once again, I want you to realize that this is for the Old Testament believers. In the New Testament, we have no such physical standards. If you read 1 Timothy 3, if you read Titus 1, it is strictly character qualities that fit someone for the ministry and the deaconship. There's no physical qualities. All right. So once again, just want to verify that the Levitical law, we are no longer under obligation to obey that law. We were never, as New Testament believers, we're never under that. That law was done away with when Jesus came.
Okay, so let's look quickly at Leviticus 22. Once again, this chapter divides itself in half. Verses 1 through 16 has to do with the priests and the food and who could eat, the, which one of the priests could eat the food. Um, and verses 17 through 33 is the sacrifices that would be acceptable to God. In verses 1 through 16, once again, we see that there were instructions that pertain to the Israelites that are not binding on us. Uh, and a few scenarios were given in this section about who could eat of the food from the offerings and who could not. God is just saying, this is my instruction, this is my command, these are the priests who can eat under these conditions and these are the priests who cannot. God's just clarifying for them how they were to go about their duties. And then the acceptable sacrifices. One of the things that was made clear is that they were not to bring a sacrifice, a lamb, a goat, a dove, an ox. They were not to bring one of those sacrifices to be offered up to the Lord if it had a defect. If it was limping on one leg, if it, you know, if it was born with only one eye, then they were not to offer that. And I believe that this is a little bit more clear, at least in my mind, because this is a sacrifice that was commanded to be without defect. And to me, as I look at this, everything within me is saying this is another road sign that points to Jesus because Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was the final and ultimate sacrifice, and he was certainly without defect, not just physically. Uh, Psalm, Isaiah 53 lets us know that there was nothing about him that people would be drawn to him. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that we... So he was just a normal, average-looking guy, but he was certainly without spiritual defect. He was perfect. He was sinless. He had obeyed every single command that pertained to him. And so Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of Leviticus 22, 17 through 33. He was the sacrifice without defect that was offered up for the sins of the world. Okay, so we get to now to Matthew 28, and this is the chapter that recounts the resurrection morning, and so we're going to camp out here for just a little bit, and because I want to unpack some things. This is incredible. In verse 1, it starts off, after the Sabbath, now remember, the Sabbath for the Jew is Saturday. So after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now, one of the things we also realize is that Mark chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that there was another lady who was there. Her name was Salome, and she was part of that. I want you to know uh, that uh, whenever you put the accounts of the four Gospels side by side, there is some difficulty in trying to reconcile them and trying to figure out the timeline and that sort of thing. Uh, one of the books that I would encourage you to look at that, uh, that seeks to answer some of those questions is a book by Lee Strobel, and it's called The Case for Easter, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for the Resurrection. It's a small paperback book, and I think that you would enjoy that book as it seeks to look at some of these discrepancies and whether or not it's provable that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But one of the things that uh, that Lee Strobel brings up in his book, and one of the things that's just obvious to anyone that understands first century Judaism, is that uh, 
women were not trusted uh, to speak truth, that, that, that they could not speak in a court of law, uh, that they could not be used as witnesses because uh, simply by virtue of the fact that she was a woman, you would not say that her uh, words were necessarily trustworthy. Now, if a guy said it, that's different. But if a woman says it, automatically you assume that she's probably not telling the truth or not informed. So with that being said, listen to this. If Matthew, a Jew, seeming to write to Jews, because Matthew quotes the Old, Testa Old Testament prolifically, so it seems as if he's writing to Jews who understand the Old Testament, and he's connecting the dots for them. So Matthew, being a Jew, writing to Jews with this mindset that a woman's testimony is not admissible in court, if you were writing this story to try to convince Jews that Jesus did rise from the dead, you would not write it like Matthew wrote it. You would not say that women went to the tomb. You would say men went to the tomb. Then it's believable. But what we have here is that uh, Matthew says that early on the first day of the week, as the sun was coming up, as it was dawning, we hear Matthew say two women, because he just focused on the two. He didn't say that there were only two. He, he just focused on the two women. And Mark tells us that there were three they tell us that women were the first ones to hear of the resurrection of Jesus from the angel. You would not write this unless it actually happened this way. The only other scenario, the only other reason a first century Jew would write it this way is if he wanted to torpedo his, his story and, and shoot it down after he had built the case for why Jesus was the Messiah. Then you would tell it this way to shoot it down unless it actually happened this way. This, the fact that women show up and these men, the gospel writers, tell us that women were the first ones not only to hear of the resurrection, but to see the resurrected Jesus. Mary Magdalene, the former prostitute, was the first one to see him. You would not write it this way unless it actually happened like this. I think it's a very compelling part of this story that validates the fact that this is true, that this happened, because you wouldn't write it like this um, in that, in that uh, setting. Also, uh, in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, it says that they were going to the tomb on the first day of the week. Now, we would say, if we've been following the story, we would say, now wait a minute, the end of chapter 27, the tomb is now sealed with a Roman seal, and anyone who breaks that Roman seal is, is condemned to death. And not only that, but there's guards, there's Roman guards there. So what were the women thinking by showing up to the tomb and merely asking who will roll the stone away? Well, the fact is, is they did not know what happened the day before. They did not know that the religious leaders had gone to Pilate and had the tomb sealed and had Roman guards. The women didn't know that. Almost certainly, they were abiding by the Sabbath law and staying close to home. And the Jews were violating the uh, Sabbath law. And so they did... Those things, they, they sealed the tomb and had the Roman guards on Saturday. The women did not know that until they showed up. 
Also, in verse 2, you have the violent earthquake. This is just something that happened at uh, Jesus' death. There was an earthquake, and now at Jesus' resurrection. The, this just seems to testify to the fact that even the earth recognizes, if, if you could personify the earth, that something climactic and something powerful, in fact, the climax of human history, um, just took place, and the earth just shook at that. Now, one of the things also that we realize in verse 2 is it says that the angel descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. He rolled back the stone. Now, one of the things I do want to tell you is he did not roll the stone back for Jesus to get out. Uh, later on, we realize one of the gospel accounts tell us tells us that the the after Jesus had rose from the dead, the disciples were in the upper room and it was locked, and Jesus appeared. Apparently, he just came through the wall, and so Jesus did not need the the stone to be rolled away in order to get out. The stone was rolled away in order for the ladies and Peter and John, who would come later, to be able to look in and actually, like Peter did, to step inside to see that he was not there. But I want you to realize that Jesus did not rise spiritually. He did not rise spiritually. I want you to know that there was no body in that tomb because Jesus rose physically, not just spiritually. He rose physically, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Okay, so verses 3 through 5, uh, the angel did show up in verses 3 through 5, and um, the guards were... Uh, saw what what uh, you know that it says that the angel was uh, appeared like lightning and the guards apparently fainted or lost consciousness of some some sort and so uh, they as soon as they woke up they took off maybe before the ladies got there verses five through seven you have the angel's message as they're taught as this angel is talking to the ladies um, verse five don't be afraid right? That shows up over and over and over in scripture. Don't be afraid. Verses 5, the second part of verse 5 through 6, we realize that they said, come in and look at the place where he laid. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. And so, as I said a while ago, Jesus did not merely raise spiritually. He rose physically. He rose physically. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that Jesus rose physically? Well, I would encourage you to write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read that chapter sometime today. Let me read to you uh, four verses out of 1 Corinthians 15. In this, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is talking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, now he's not talking about a spiritual resurrection, he's talking about a bodily resurrection from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, if he didn't raise bodily, then our proclamation, the gospel that we proclaim, us telling people that you will not die, you will live forever bodily, physically in a place called heaven, he said our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. Your trust in Jesus is worthless. If Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, then you and I will not physically rise from the dead. Then we are trusting in a supposed Savior who could not conquer the grave, and so therefore we will not conquer the grave as well. 
It was absolutely essential that Jesus didn't just rise spiritually, but he rose physically. He died with a physical body there on the cross. He rose with a physical body there from that tomb. Now listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, right? Because we're trusting in a Savior that could not conquer death. He didn't. The gospel is not just that Jesus died. It's also that he rose again. He not only had to conquer sin, he had to conquer the grave, right? And so that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, or he's just using euphemistic language, those who have died in Christ, those saved people who have died, they've perished. Oh, that takes us back to John chapter 3, that if we trust in Christ, if we believe in him, we will not perish but have everlasting life. So Paul is saying that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and we're trusting in a dead Savior, then we're on our way to hell. Verse 19, and if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You know, after all, why would we live this life and deny ourselves of the temporary pleasures of this life if all we're going to do is end up in a place called hell? He is building the case for the fact that Jesus' bodily resurrection was absolutely essential. It's a vital component to the gospel. We don't just preach Christ crucified. We preach that Jesus physically rose from the dead. He didn't just conquer sin. He also conquered the grave. Um, because think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, what was the consequence? Well, there was a lot of bad things that happened. Difficulty in childbirth for Eve, difficulty in labor and work, and the earth has a curse on it now for Adam. But ultimately, it was death. So sin was the action. Death was the consequence. Jesus paid for sin on the cross. He dealt with the consequence of sin by rising from the grave. So I want you to know the gospel is not just Jesus' death on the cross. It's also the bodily resurrection. In verse 7, we also read that the angels tell his disciples to go into Galilee. Go into Galilee. Get away from the southern area where Jerusalem is and go up to Galilee where Jesus did much. Most of his ministry, really. Um... Then in verses 8 through 10, we see that the ladies see the resurrected Christ. Now, once again, if you compare this to the other Gospels, you're thinking, now, how does this all play out? Because it can get a little complicated in trying to figure out how these all things, these fit, things fit together. But this is something else that I find so encouraging. I actually want the Gospels not to contradict. They don't contradict, but I want them to not tell me the same thing. Because if you're in a court of law and you have some witnesses that say that they saw an act happen, and when they are each on the stand individually, if all of them are using the same phrases, they are all saying the exact same thing, you know what you're thinking? You're thinking they corroborated, they got with each other, and they came up with one story they're all going to tell. And you know what that does? That discredits every single one of them. What we find compelling is witnesses who tell us the same story, but tell it differently. 
You know, they saw different things. They experienced it differently. That actually strengthens their stories as long as they don't conflict with each other. And I'm telling you, the Gospels do not conflict with each other, but they certainly tell things differently. And so it is interesting to try to fit this all together. But it's it's what it's another one of the reasons why I believe that they did not work together, but they told the stories as they saw it. And uh, I think the differences validate that this is how it happened. And they didn't get together to tell their story, tell the same story. They told it as the Holy Spirit led them and as they remembered it. Verses 11 through 15, we see that the soldiers were bribed to lie. And honestly, if you look at this, this, this is just bizarre. It's just bizarre. This, this whole alibi and promising to save the... The, the soldiers, if the word gets out, um, it just doesn't make sense. This is what happened, but it's it the alibi itself just doesn't make sense. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave that to you. Verses 16 through 20, we have the Great Commission. Now, in verses 16, it says the 11 apostles, right? It's not 12 because Judas is dead. Uh, he has hung himself. And according to Acts 1, not only did he hang himself, but apparently he fell. And Acts 1 says that his in, internal intestines, they kind of fell out. So apparently, as he hung himself, his body fell, maybe a branch broke or something like that, hit his stomach ripped his stomach open, and it was just a gory mess, according to Acts 1. But Judas is not there. The other 11 apostles are there, but there's also the possibility that there are other people, other disciples that are there. In verse 17, it says, Many believed and worshipped, but some doubted. Some doubted. So there were still people that just weren't sure that Jesus really was alive. Um, in one of... <clears throat> Sorry about that. In one of these stories, Jesus is actually going to talk to his disciples and tell them, you know what? I know that y'all don't believe that I'm in a physical body. Do you have anything to eat? And then he eats a fish meal in front of them just to convince them that he is not a figment of their imagination. He's not a spirit. He really is physically alive in front of them. In verse 18, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay. So what is this talking about? Well, one of the things I think it most immediately means and the, the meaning of this that's just most obvious on the surface is Jesus say, says, I have authority in heaven and on earth. And, and what that means is I'm going to tell you what to do and I have every right to expect that you are going to obey me, right? Because I have authority in heaven. I say to the angels, jump, and they jump. I tell you what I'm about to tell you. I have every reason to expect that you are going to obey me. So that's one of the things we see. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that means we better listen to what he's about to say because he has the right to tell us and the right to expect compliance. But there's something else I see. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when was it given to him? Did, did he not have this previously? Um, as God, doesn't he have authority in heaven and on earth? Well, what I see is that Jesus came as fully God as he was living out his life on earth. He was living it as fully God, but also, listen to this, I believe he was ultimately living his life on earth as fully man with his deity in the background. 
I don't think he played the God card. I think he lived fully man. And you may say, well, what about the miracles? Well, Old Testament prophets performed miracles as the Spirit enabled them. Well, what about him raising people from the dead? Yes, Elijah raised someone from the dead as the Spirit enabled him. I'm telling you, much of what Jesus did was, was in some way or another, in some form or another, mimicked by prophets of old in the Old Testament that were moved and empowered by the Spirit. Jesus was and is fully God, but I believe that he lived his life out as fully man. Now, why is that important? Because Adam was fully man. He was not fully God, but Adam was most certainly fully man as God created him in Genesis 1, and then we read of the elaboration of that creation in, in Genesis 2. But Adam was fully man, and as fully man, he was given authority over planet Earth. In Genesis 1, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and so on and so forth. So God said, Let us make man in our image, man and woman, and let them rule. What's God saying? Let them have authority over the earth. But what happens? Adam loses that authority. When? In Genesis 3. Eve sins, but God ultimately holds Adam responsible. And so Adam was the one who was guilty. And because Adam sinned, the curse was placed upon the woman, upon the serpent, upon Adam, and also ultimately upon the earth as well. Everything. And now mankind wants to rule the earth, but it's not like it was back in Genesis 1 and 2. Mankind essentially has lost the authority over planet Earth because the Earth is now not going as smoothly as it did in Genesis 1 and 2. So man lost, because of sin, mankind lost the authority that God gave to him. And God is just. And he's not going to take back anything that is not rightfully his. And so if a man lost paradise, if a man lost authority over the Earth then a man had to regain authority over the earth. So who was the second Adam? Who was this man that came to regain what the first Adam lost? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22, it says this, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, since death and then the consequences and the loss of authority, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. That's Jesus. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. I think that's the key to understanding what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me on earth. He got back what Adam lost. God is the ruler over heaven and earth, but a man lost authority. And so God, as a man, got back that authority that Adam lost. And so I believe that's the significance. And in fact, we see that uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Jesus, fully God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, but maintained his deity, but gave up many of his rights and privileges, and humbled himself by becoming a man, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us, even to the point of dying on the cross. 
And then the very next verses, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, tell us that because Jesus humbled himself, died on the cross, and rose from the dead, then God has exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And so this is what Jesus did. He was given authority as fully man to gain back what Adam, the first Adam, lost. Jesus, Paul calls, the second Adam. Well, when we see verses 19 through 20, as we finish up this chapter, we read what, what is typically called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Not the Great Suggestion. It's the Great Commission. Jesus is sending his disciples out with a mission with something that they are to do. And here he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He said, don't just stay where you are. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. Now he didn't say go get people saved. Getting people saved is the first part of making disciples, but disciple making is not getting people saved. Disciple making is saying, okay, this is how you trust in Jesus. Now that you're saved, let's talk about how you can follow Jesus, how you can live a life pleasing to him, how you can follow him and surrender to him and enjoy him and obey him and experience the fullness of Christ in you. That's what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying, go get people saved. He was saying, go get people saved and help them to grow in their understanding of what it means to follow me and enjoy me and submit to me. But he didn't just say, go to the people of Israel. He said, go to all nations. Now the world is open to the believers. Jesus said, go to every single nation. And in fact, when you read in Revelation, we realize that every nation, tribe, and tongue is going to be represented in heaven. Every single people group is going to be in heaven. Every color, every language, every dialect, they're going to be in heaven. So he not only says, go and make disciples, he then says, baptizing them. So what's baptism? Baptism is a powerful picture. There's a so much of what Christians believe is not biblical. In, in that, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just not in the Bible. And if you were to ask the average Christian, you know, especially maybe the older generation, you know, how do you go public with your faith? How do you tell others what Jesus has done for you? They would say, "Oh, you walk the aisle." Well. There's nothing wrong with walking the aisle. The only problem is, is that there were no aisles in church buildings because there were no church buildings in the first century. There were no church buildings in the second century. It wasn't until about the third century that we were beginning to hear that there were church buildings being constructed. So there were no center aisles for people to walk forward. So how did they go public with their faith. And as we look at them, we can ask the question, how should we go public with our faith? Do you know what the biblical answer is? Get baptized publicly. That's how you go public with your faith. It's not walking some aisle. That, that's no place in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the biblical instruction. That's not the biblical command. The first command that we have after getting saved is to go public with our faith and to be baptized. And baptism is just a powerful picture. It shows our association with Christ as he died, was buried, and rose again. So we also recognize that when we demonstrate that as we were saved, that we died to ourselves and we're now living, but it's Christ in us. And so we're put under the water and come back up. It's a picture of our identification with Christ. 
But I also want you to realize that as Jesus said that, he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I'm telling you, there's some people that say, you know, I don't believe, I think you just need to be uh, baptized in the name of the Son. And I, I don't even understand the logic of some of them. I had somebody, I can't even remember who it was, within the past few weeks that told me that they just did not understand and they thought it was wrong for people to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <sighs> I mean, just read Matthew 28, 19, <laughs> baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, I'm telling you, the reason I'm so passionate about teaching God's word is I'm convinced that many people that claim to be Christians don't even know it. They don't even know it. Uh, we have got, we've got one book. You know, if you, if you were to go into any career and that would require college, you would have to master so many books as a Christian, we have one book, 66, as it were, books in it, or we could even call them chapters. Uh, one book. We've got to be in the book. There's so many people that claim to speak authoritatively for Christ, and they don't even know what it says. But we read about that when we are baptized, that it is to recall the Trinity, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, this kind of goes back to the making of disciples. How do you make disciples? One way is you teach. And in fact, in the Gospels, much of it is Jesus doing activities and helping people in their time of need. But I'm telling you, a large part is just him teaching. In order for us to behave rightly, we have to be taught. In order for us to think rightly, we've got to be taught how to think. And so part of making disciples, a big part, is the teaching ministry. That's the preaching time. That's the teaching time. That's not just in a formal classroom, but that's also with your kids. Spending time go as you, as you are driving in the car, taking them to school or, or whatever else. You're speaking biblical principles and biblical truth into a scenario. If they're struggling, you speak biblical truth in it that to show them how it is that they're to think. The whole thing that we are called to do is help people to think and act biblically, and we do that by teaching them. Again, do not delegate this responsibility solely to the church. The church is to come alongside and set the standard but this teaching needs to happen every day in your home and to whatever extent you're able, in your car, in your workplace, in your school, anywhere else, anywhere that you are able, you are speaking God's word, speaking God's word. And then the chapter ends, the, the Matthew ends with verse 20. At the very end, it says, And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I am with you until the world comes to an end, and then we get to be with each other forever. But I'm telling you, as we look at how Matthew quotes Jesus, he chooses this quote to end his gospel. He says, Jesus said, remember, I am with you always. That kind of takes us back to the very first chapter. I mean, it's like bookends. The last chapter ends with Jesus saying, I'm with you always. The first chapter, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
he is Emmanuel, the very last verse of this book, he is saying, I am with you. I will be with you. I am the one who is going to help you remember these things in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to enable you to remember the things that you have been taught in, in my word. I'm going to help you to recall the things that you continue to study, and I'm going to help you live these things out. I will not leave you. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. What a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And that last thought, the final words of, of the Gospel of Matthew and then your name as, as you were given, Emmanuel, which means God with us in the first chapter of Matthew. We're just reminded that of the old hymn that says, No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would realize the truth of that, not just to believe it in our mind, but to swallow it and embrace that truth in our heart and realize that not only do you love us, but you love us up close. In fact, Romans 8 tells us so up close that your spirit is even inside of us. Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in your presence with us, but also not merely comfort. Lord, I pray that we would find strength to live the commands that you have given to us, not out of duty, but out of a love for someone, out of a love for the one who loves us so much that he gave himself for us. Lord, help us out of gratitude to live for you. Thank you for promising to never leave me alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our time together as we have looked at a uh, few more chapters, a couple more chapters in Leviticus, and then the final chapter in Matthew. Now, uh, we're going to be getting into Mark and just the nature of the Bible study we're, we're going through, the Bible reading plan that we're going through. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to have just two chapters in Leviticus, and then on February the 19th, in two days, we're going to get into Mark. And so I am so much looking forward to spending some more time with you tomorrow. And I hope you're enjoying this. I know that I am. And I'm looking forward to spending that time with you tomorrow. We'll talk to you then. Bye-bye.